Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 51 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am so pleased to welcome as my guest the incredibly versatile and incredibly likable 37-year-old Brit, James Corden. For just over a year now, Corden has hosted CBS's The Late Late Show, which follows The Late Show with Stephen Colbert each weeknight. This is a guy who previously starred in two hit theatrical productions that went from the National Theater to Broadway, winning a Tony for one, who won a BAFTA for a British TV series that he co-wrote and starred in, and who's acted in films opposite the likes of Meryl Streep and Keira Knightley. In the late night universe, he, like Jimmy Fallon, has perfected the art of the viral video. From a segment on his very first episode in which he and Tom Hanks reenacted Hanks' whole career in just six minutes, to his Adele installment of Carpool Karaoke, his Hallmark bit, which has attracted nearly 98 million views since January 13th. On June 12th, he'll be returning to Broadway to host the Tony Awards, and on July 14th, he hopes to pick up his first primetime Emmy nomination in the category of Outstanding Variety Talk Series. He could well grab one of the slots vacated by The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, or The Late Show with David Letterman. I sat down with him in a conference room within his offices at CBS Television City in Los Angeles to discuss his odds-defying rise to prominence, his adjustment to the grind of putting out new and exciting episodes of his late-night show each weeknight, and the philosophy that propels him, a husband and father of two young children, to work as hard as he does at all that he does. I found it to be a funny and fascinating conversation, and I hope that you do too. James, thank you so much for doing this. It's and a pleasure. Appreciate it. I've never been in this room that we're sat in. <laughs> well, it's very work literally next door. Well I've decorated. Never been in here. <laughs> I know. Would it hurt them to put up a picture? <laughs> Just going to go with the whiteboard and TV. But and this then is what nothing I expect. On the walls. Like a network TV. It's like movie network. Remember, they come in and they have the the massive table, and this is the and then someone on a screen screaming. Yeah, at but you. you would expect there would be like a picture of Mark Harmon or something. <laughs> That's what you'd imagine. Here on the lot. Scuffs on the wall from right. people's chairs. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have just passed your one year anniversary here. Yeah. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, and before we dive into other stuff, I mean, how does it feel? What's your assessment after a year? I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of what we've achieved. I'm, I'm very proud. You know, if well, we met back in January when we were in pre production, and you know, that the, the we knew what we wanted the show to feel like. We knew that we wanted to make a show that would embrace the internet. We knew that we wanted to make a show that would be relevant. And that felt so difficult to do in, in a world where, to be plainly honest, it was just very, very difficult to get people to come on the show. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm completely sight unseen. No one knew who this host was no one really knew anything of it and we were trying to make a very very ambitious show we just never wanted to make a show that was defined by time slot and I feel very grateful actually that I didn't grow up here so I'm not really akin to this sort of world of like 11.30 shows and 12.30 shows like I'm constantly amazed when anybody sort of talks about it in that respect and and we were like no we're just going to make a show that's really good and if it's really good people will find it and they'll share it and they'll talk about it and I don't know I guess I feel very proud because we we set sort of goals for ourselves we said and we looked at other shows and what they had achieved and we were aware that these were often shows that were hosted by people that had been on huge comedy franchises for eight nine ten years you know we thought we'd love to have 500,000 subscribers to our YouTube Mm -hmm. channel by the end of year one and now we're at five million subscribers and we have like across all platforms we've had like 1.9 billion views on the internet and and what that does is it makes you go okay well we're making content that people like yeah and they are watching it and they're sharing it and that's all we ever wanted to do really you know well obviously we'll dive deeply into some of the stuff that you guys are doing but first I think it seems like maybe part of the reason that you've worked so well in this format is that it allows you to incorporate so many of the things that you did before, which Americans may not have necessarily known about, but which I want to ask you about. But first of all, just to set the scene, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? 
I was born in a small town about sort of an hour and a half outside of London in a suburb in Buckinghamshire. And Buckinghamshire is a very, very lovely place. The town that I was in, High Wycombe, is painfully ordinary Mm -hmm. and sort of, uh, it's a succession of roundabouts, basically. (laughs) And my father was a musician in the Royal Air Force for sort of 25 years. And then now he's a Christian book salesman. Mm -hmm. So he sells the Bible and... uh, you know any of those like fish stickers you see on the back of people's cars he sells them and my mum is a social worker and I have two sisters and it was a very very lovely environment to grow up in and when did you first try performing in one way or another even if it was just something silly and when did it first occur to you that it was something you could do for your life well I mean the truth is I don't really remember a time where I didn't want to perform in some capacity. I can remember very much, we used to go to the Salvation Army, we're a Salvation Army family and I remember going to my sister's christening. I was three or four and my sister was obviously a newborn and we went up onto the platform which to all intents and purposes in my head was just a stage and uh, <laughs> and because of the various godparents and people that were on the stage I couldn't really see So the Salvation Army officer, the priest, got a chair and said, here, James, stand on this. And I can remember standing on that chair. I remember it so vividly, looking out into the congregation, and and it it looked like it was a 1,000 people. It was probably 30. (laughs) And I uh, started pulling funny faces. I sort of turned around, and I bent over and looked back between my legs, and people were laughing, and it was great and and it wasn't that that wasn't the moment that it sunk in for me it was after the christening had finished and we went back into the congregation I was sat between my mum and dad in the congregation staring at the person's back who was sat in front of me and I remember thinking oh so up there feels amazing and this just feels boring (laughs) by comparison right and that was it really I, I just never didn't want to perform it was just all I ever wanted to do I just don't remember a time where there was an other you know right and you were doing it through school and all that yeah and then I was in a school play and there was a a girl in our school who would be in like paint commercials and things like that and her there was a, a stage school in High Wycombe called the Jackie Palmer Stage School and a lady from the stage school was at our sort of school play and approached me and my dad and said did I want to come to lessons after school and be on the agency and I did and I went along and, and I I auditioned all throughout school and I never got a single job I would always get recalled or to the last two or three and, and never got a a job and then it was when I was 17 I was doing my A-levels which is sort of the course you do in between school and university and I auditioned for a musical in the West End called Martin Gare and I, and I got that job and from then on it, it just sort of snowball from there really at the end of that I shot a movie with a a brilliant director called Shane Meadows who shot his first feature called 24-7 with Bob Hoskins I shot that and then and then I just kept working but what's interesting to say is the the Jackie Palmer Stage School in High Wycombe which is a a very small town in it had like a wonderful period where there was myself and then a few years below me was Eddie Redmayne and a few years below him was uh, Aaron Johnson and we all kind of came out and a kind of you know, working. That's yeah, that's terrific. Now, for you, I think the first time you really maybe went on people's international radar would have been the History Boys, right? Because we first did that at the National Theater, then Broadway, mm. 2006. Yeah. So for you, how did that come about, and did that feel like a big deal? It was an, an incredible time in my life, really, not only because of the friendships that I made at that time, but also it sort of defined my career really because as soon as that play opened at the National Theatre it just became the play to Mm -hmm. see like in the UK if you imagine how like Hamilton (laughs) feels now on Broadway that's how it felt then and 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 felt in New York you know the the play won six Tony Awards and and was a phenomenon in many respects and and in this play was eight boys all of a similar age at a similar point in their careers really like at that point I guess I'd probably worked the most I'd done a movie with Mike Lee and I'd worked with Shane and I'd done a a few TV series at home but then what happened while we were making the History Boys or while that play was on was you know what show business is like there's nothing greater than 
a hot new right. actor and um, it became very clear that, that I was never going to be that like all of the boys I can remember days where all of the boys would come in with reams of just film scripts under their arms and Dominic's meeting Steven Spielberg. This is Dominic Cooper, right? Yeah, and Sam Barnett's meeting for this HBO show, right. and Russell Tovey's going to meet David Fincher for this thing, and and I would get like, I wouldn't get the whole script. I'd get like the two scenes <laughs> of the guy who played like a news agent or the guy who drops off a TV to Hugh Grant <laughs> in a movie, and I was like, oh, oh, this is only being defined by the way I look. It felt like people were going oh no well, we think you're talented but you're not a star you know you're going to play a succession of just bubbly judges right. <laughs> throughout your career and uh, good for you the man. Richard Griffiths trajectory right I mean he was the guy that you worked with in that yeah right? yeah and, and I was like oh oh I always imagined that I would sort of get to sit at that table if you like and, and when it became clear to me that no one was just going to make a seat available to me in, in the way that they do for other people that was when I decided to start writing really and, and um, myself and a wonderful actress and writer called Ruth Jones wrote a TV series for the BBC called Gavin and Stacey mm -hmm. which we wrote and we handed in and, and they said we'd love you to shoot this as soon as you finished in the History Boys when we get back from New York and that show was on a small cable channel called BBC Three which mm -hmm. not everybody had in the UK and mm -hmm. our first episode aired with I think like 500,000 viewers and then by the time we ended the show the show had moved from BBC Three to BBC Two to BBC One and our last episode had I think like 14 million viewers and, and was you know arguably the biggest sitcom in the country yeah. at that time and that changed my career really. How did you handle this new degree of fame? Not not particularly well. I'd broken up with a girlfriend of sort of eight years leading up to... Just after we'd shot Gavin and Stacey, we broke up and uh, I'd never been single before. And it's a very, very heady concoction when you become well-known and you're single for the first time. So I would just go out all the time and then I learned very quickly that if you want to do good work the two are mutually exclusive you really can't be out till 6am and then arrive on a set and think that you're going to create right. anything of any worth really you know but it was a wonderful time it was but you know it was brilliant <laughs> certainly but you know that thing of like if you're always told this is never going to be you and then you start winning BAFTA yeah. awards and you win the Writers Guild of Great Britain's Comedy Writer of the Year and you are on the cover of GQ and all those things, you go, oh, people have made it clear to me this was never going to be me. So what you actually think is this is going to disappear at any point. Right. So you just sort of want to grab it by both hands, really. Yeah, so I have very few regrets about that time. Yeah, yeah. My, my only regrets are the work that I produced in that sort of seven or eight months I'm not particularly proud of. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I had a real blast. One of your piece of work that I think you probably are very proud of is One Man, Two Governors, which yeah. is something that was on Broadway in 2012 and ended up resulting in a Tony Award for you, mm. which is a huge accomplishment at any age, but you, you know, at a very young age with you. What was that experience like? And having had it, did you realize that that was going to potentially <clears throat> catapult you to more things in the U.S.? Not really, because when you're doing a play like that, you really just focused on the play that you're doing, and, and it was so physically demanding. The truth is, when we moved to New York, I remember saying to my wife, I'm pretty sure this play isn't going to work. Like, it was so British in its tone. It was very much what we call music hall, what you would call yeah. vaudeville. Yeah. You know, end of the pier, seaside Britain comedy open and shut door fast you know and then I can remember like 10 minutes into our first preview just going oh okay well if they're laughing at this we <laughs> haven't even got to the really funny right. stuff and I mean that was the greatest time of my professional life doing that play in New York was like it was so hard it was so physically demanding doing it eight times a week that the harder you work, the more gratifying it is, really. And I just felt 
there were moments doing that play where I would think, if I could stay in this moment, this moment right now, I would for the rest of my life. It was brilliant. And you don't really know at that time that Rob Marshall's coming to see the play and right. is thinking about you for the lead in this film. You, don't, you certainly don't think that Nina Tassler and Les Moonves are coming to watch that play. Les told me he came to the play and he went home and just went online and sort of spent two hours just watching different clips of me on YouTube and then called Nina and said, we need to have him on our network. And you don't know that when no, you're doing it. No. You're just doing it, yeah. you know? Well, just to contextualize for people, the Rob Marshall project that resulted, obviously, into the woods. Yeah. And the Tassler Moonvest one is what we're here now, Late mm. Late Show. Also, we should note, or I feel compelled to note, because it was my favorite movie of 2014, Begin Again. You had a nice Well, little... I shot Begin Again whilst I was doing the play. Really? Uh, yeah. So John Carney came to the play with a, a brilliant producer called Anthony Bregman and um, we went for a drink after and John said we're shooting this movie do you think you'll be able to do it whilst you're doing the play and if I'm honest my wife was like babe don't be ridiculous you're so tired just you know you don't have to do everything but the truth is side projects are very very important to keep your main project incredibly creative and you never want to settle into a lull of anything. You never want routine to become a sort of weight on your shoulders, really. And so, and mostly, I just thought, well, I've always wanted to shoot a film in New York. I've just always wanted it. Like, I grew up, I felt like I'd been to New York before I'd ever gone. I'd never set foot in New York until we opened in the History Boys. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't grow up in a family where we could ever afford to travel. So I just thought, who am I to turn down a film with a director I really like, mm -hmm. doing scenes with Mark Ruffalo and Kira Knightley? Who am I to, to pass that up? Like, being tired is not enough <laughs> of a reason not to do it, you right. know? And the truth is, I loved it. There were, I actually felt at my most sort of furtive creatively, really, because I would shoot in the day. I'd often start my shoot day at like 11 a.m., mm -hmm. I'd shoot through till five, I'd get in a car, drive across town, do a show, and then some nights would get back in a car in my costume, because <laughs> then you would avoid the sort of people at stage door, you'd be able to get out quicker. Right, right, right. So I'd run off stage into a car, drive across town, get changed into my other costume, <laughs> and shoot these night shoots till like maybe one, two AM. And I just thought, my God, this is a privilege. Like, I felt so lucky just to, have a life that is that, you know? It's unbelievable, because I have so much admiration for anybody that does Broadway, as I know you do, and you're going to be hosting the Tonys. The idea that, you know, these guys are paid considerably less than TV and film people most of the time. They work considerably harder than most. I think most of the time. I think it's all of all the, time, the time, you know? And there's no getting by just because you're a pretty face there. You can maybe do that in TV or film, but there is nobody that can just fake it on Broadway. Yeah, Theatre is the truest art form. The truth is this. Eight times out of ten that you go to the theatre, you're like, meh. <laughs> nah. Nah, it was alright. It cost me too much money to have this experience. <laughs> However, those two times that you go, when it's brilliant, when it's at its best, I don't think anything comes close to... Like, over any film, any binge watching of a TV show there is nothing like that feeling of it's happening now and it's only happening for me mm -hmm. and it's great and I feel very very lucky to have been in two shows that have sort of transcended or not transcended that's too much like no they really the, impacted people <clears throat> yes that have crossed borders basically yeah. and to become culturally important absolutely know? so talk about that first interaction with cbs where they come to you and they what do they say we would like to meet with you specifically about something or was it surprise to you what they wanted to talk to you about we never actually started talking about this show at all i'd written a tv series for the bbc called the wrong mans which did very very well with a, a brilliant actor and writer called matthew bainton and again it won quite a few awards and was very much one of those shows mm -hmm. and uh and I sort of realised that if I sort of stayed in the UK, if you like, that I could only really repeat the success that I'd had. And um, I thought, well, maybe the next thing is to try and make a show for American television. So I came to Los Angeles and 
I spent sort of a week going around and I had a framework of an idea of a TV show. And amazingly, everyone I met said, yes, we'd like to make that show. And then it got into a place of, because I was only here for a week, mm -hmm. it, it ran into a place of, you know, this town is so wonderful in its uh, hunger. <laughs> and it got to a point where where offers were just sort of being, I was kind of going, well, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this, is, this is crazy right. to be offering so much thing. And then... And then in the end, when I thought about the show, and CBS, I should say, had made a very, very, very good offer. Mm -hmm. And I was incredibly flattered. And I met Nina Tesla, and she was clearly an amazing and brilliant woman who was passionate about working with me and passionate about this idea I had. But then as I went, when I went home and I started thinking about it a lot more, it became very clear to me that this was not a network show. Mm -hmm. The show that it was becoming in my head was an HBO or a Showtime show or an FX show and so I had agreed a deal to make the show with HBO and I think CBS were like I don't understand this is crazy mm -hmm. and uh, I was in New York and so I went to BlackRock to meet with uh, Leslie and, and Nina or almost to sort of explain why I felt the show when we were, and I sort of said look you're going to take this pilot you're going to pay a lot of money for it. I'm going to deliver a show that you're not going to want to put on your network. You're going to be annoyed at me for not wanting to change it. I'm going to be annoyed at you for the changes you want to make to it. <laughs> and within two months' time, you're going to say, well, that was a disaster. Right. We'll never work with him again. And I'm going to go, God, they just try and change everything. <laughs> and I said, look, I, I would love nothing more to write a network television show. I love network television. I think it's brilliant. The people it can reach, the generations it can reach, the idea of families sitting down to watch a show, I would love to, but this isn't it. So I was going to write this show for uh, HBO and I was going to do a musical on Broadway. I was going to do a funny thing happen on the way to the forum. And then we got talking and Stephen Colbert had just been announced uh, about a week ago and Craig Ferguson had said that he was stepping down and I sort of said to them, I think Colbert is a genius appointment and I thought the way that they handled it, it was so deftly done. Mm -hmm. It was brilliant. No leaks, no things, no stuff, just this is our guy, this is what we're doing. Here is a man who's won 10 Emmys, has a mind like no one else, it's brilliant. And I said, uh, I said, that's great. And I said, I think it opens a real opportunity for you for the show that you're going to put after that. And I sort of said to them that, that, like, I felt like, unless they made a show that just embraced the internet, don't make one. I was like, because nowhere else in TV do you go, eight till nine, we're going to have a hospital drama, <laughs> and then nine till 10, we're going to have another hospital drama with the same diseases, you know? <laughs> and then we're talking about it more and more, and I said, you know, it should be about atmosphere, it should be about feeling, it should feel like it's alive and a, and a party almost, and it should feel intimate, and it, it should try and reach out to a generation of people that perhaps aren't watching network television and it should be a launch pad for the internet really. And then that afternoon they said, would I like to host the Late Late Show? And I said, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I just didn't see that as right. being my career or something that I'd want to do. And then... Because you'd just been giving them input generally for... I was just for, saying what yeah. I felt it should be, you yeah. know? Like I talked then in that meeting about you know, bring all the guests out together. Yeah. Make it feel like more alike. Like... And I would talk about it as a visual medium. I would go, it's not enough to do a podcast on TV. You know? Mm -hmm. It isn't enough. Right. People need more. Your, your competition is so much greater than it used to be. Mm -hmm. In a world where I can watch 20 episodes of House of Cards now right. if I want to. Right. And what can't that give you? Big entertainment moments, you know? And then it went quiet for a while and then they came back and it was just... I, I, I just felt very, very reticent about doing it. I just didn't feel like it was... I just never considered it. Well, for one thing, it would involve moving you and your whole family with two young kids to another part of the world. Yeah, and that actually became a really big focus in it, really, because the show I'd written for the BBC, we went to shoot in Johannesburg, and we were there for like a month, and I was shooting in a South African prison, <laughs> Skyping my son on my birthday, thinking... And my wife was pregnant at the time, and I was thinking... what what am I doing? This is only going to get harder. And, and all I could think is like, I don't know, I just don't feel like any child grows up living on a, getting on a therapist chair going, my dad was just around too much. <laughs> he gave me too many cuddles. And, then, and I was thinking, well, actually, what do I want from my career in life? All I really want is to be creative every day 
that's all I'm really striving for is creativity every day and here is a job which offers almost nothing but that mm -hmm. and I just got thinking about it more and more and, and I spoke to my wife and I was like you know what do you think and and then I just thought I'd much rather regret doing something than not doing something and I, and I was so aware that it was just such a risk at that point in my career to to do such a thing and I thought well you know what's the worst that happens it's pulled off the air in six months well so be it but at least I'll know at least I won't be sat in a trailer somewhere in a parking lot thinking oh, I wonder if I'd have, I wonder if I could have done that you right. know was it a concern of yours that to most people in America your name and your face were still totally unfamiliar I mean I guess that was also the case when Craig Ferguson came on the job but did you feel like that was going to be a big issue when you come on and there's presumably some expectation of certain ratings and impact and all of that. Most people, as you say, that have held late night hosting gigs came on with a profile already. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, to be honest, I sort of, and I honestly, I don't mean this arrogantly in any way, but like I sort of thought, well, I've written two multi-award winning sitcoms. Yes. I've been in two plays on Broadway. I've won the Best Actor Tony Award and I have a film coming out at Christmas with Meryl Streep <laughs> and Johnny Depp. I felt like, I, well, I've done my 10,000 hours, you know? <laughs> and I thought, well, those hurdles, we can work on them and break them down. And I do believe, particularly in America, that an element of discovery is a wonderful thing. An element of finding someone and going, who's that? Yeah, yeah. It's great. And I was like, well, this whole show is not about playing to my strengths, it's about ignoring my weaknesses, is the truth. And we were like, well, let's just pull on all of those things. Yeah. And yeah, I think I was probably very, very naive. I don't think I really realized quite how hard that would be. You Plus know? you only had like 10 weeks from when you committed to when you were going on the air, is that right? When we arrived here, it was myself, Ben Winston, Rob Crabb, Josie Cliff and Sheila Rogers. Yeah. We had five and we had ten weeks. Those are people you'd worked with before. No, I'd, no. I'd only worked with Ben. We'd found Rob Crabb. He left the Tonight Show to mm -hmm. come to our show. Sheila Rogers was David Letterman's booker mm -hmm. for 25 years and Josie Cliff had come from music management but had, was looking for a, to stay more in Los Angeles and we just felt certain that she would be a great person to work on this show and with and absolutely is. She's amazing mm -hmm. at it and we had to hire 70 people, mm -hmm. build a set and work out what the show was going to be in, in 10 weeks. It's crazy. Which uh, I think is far less time than anyone else yeah. has had to do such yeah. a thing. You know, in retrospect, they were really mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing that occurred to me is that when you started, you were going to be following Letterman for seven weeks. Then yeah. you were going to be following in the summer just a bunch of repeats, yeah. I guess, Mentalist and other stuff. Mm. And then Colbert was going to come on. So on the one hand... I wondered if it was frustrating to not have a reliable, regular lead-in. But on the other hand, was it kind of a blessing to have some time to find your footing before Colbert became your regular lead-in? The truth is, I don't really know how many people watch our show. I've mm -hmm. got no idea. I couldn't tell you. But what I do know is yeah. our ratings haven't really changed. Yeah. Whether we were following CSI Miami <laughs> or Stephen Colbert's show, right. it hasn't really changed. Of course, there's spikes like... There's a spike on Stephen's first show. There's right. a spike on Letterman's last, last show. Yeah. But uh, they haven't changed, really. I don't know. It just feels so crazy to me to even think of television in terms of time slot. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm constantly mystified <laughs> by... Like, my son is five, mm -hmm. right? He doesn't understand the notion of something being on. My nephew is 12. He doesn't go, oh, what time's that show on? Right. It's like, I want to watch it now. Right. <laughs> and that's it. Like, I, I, it just, it seems crazy to me. In fact, the only time I've ever got like slightly unnecessarily sort of like British about things <laughs> is I was very fortunate to be given a, a I did a cover of Entertainment Weekly yeah. a few weeks ago and someone there tweeted, uh, wow, this is a big deal for a, a 12.30 host to get an Entertainment Weekly cover in his first year. And I just remember thinking, what, what, what do you mean? It, like, 
what world are we living in where there's a <laughs> where there's such a thing as a 12:30 host right. and 11:30 right. like like it just seems so machiavellian to me <laughs> to think about it right. like that like our show we have like 5 million subscribers to our YouTube yeah, yeah. channel we've got billions of views on YouTube we've delivered the two highest rated episodes of the late late show in its franchise's 25 year history right. and I just don't like yeah. it's like it's just not that isn't the world that no, we're no, living no. in what are schedules and what are TV stations like TV channels are just going to become apps they're just going to be apps the line between your phone iPad and TV is already blurred right and these skinny bundles it's issue already is going to break it up yeah it's just your screen is going to be a group of apps yeah. that you will either subscribe to or not subscribe right. to and and that's it and there's not going to be any notion of like when's it on you know the only time though it seems that you did consider what was around you in terms of the schedule was in terms of tailoring your show the set the style the vibe to sort of follow in a interesting way what was preceding it right i mean i've read you talk about the fact that the Letterman venue and things like that shaped the way that you guys went with yours. For sure. When we were thinking about how the show would feel and how the show would look, we would think, well, what's the show that's on before us? It's on in a Broadway theatre, like a 500-seat Broadway theatre. Okay. Well, where would you go after the theatre? You might go to a bar. You might go to a restaurant. You might go to a comedy club. You're certainly going to go to an environment that's perhaps a, a little more intimate and in fact, when we came to our studio here, the only thing we were like thinking about when we first walked in there was like, oh, it's quite a low ceiling. Mm -hmm. And then as we thought of it, we were like, well, let's make it a bit lower. Let's bring it, or let's have like these theater seats at the front with the Tiffany lamps. Let's make our set a 360 degree set. Let's bring our guests through an audience. Let's make it feel like an organic open environment where there would be conversation and fun and that's yes that's that's what we think about it. the other time we thought about it was through the summer where after David Letterman had finished before Stephen's show launched we were following we were following any number of shows <laughs> so we would like follow Hawaii Five-0 right, right, right. so Hawaii Five-0 would end and then we would do talking yeah. Hawaii Five-0 <laughs> or like talking CSI right. Cyber or talking <laughs> NCIS where we would right. we would sit with whoever the guests were and Reggie and we'd just sit and go wow yeah. that was that was a big episode right. I just and then we'd say I just didn't see that twist coming and then I, could, I think it was Chris Hardwick was on the show who said do you know what I didn't even see it coming the first time I saw it when it was on originally right. and the second time it was repeated I didn't <laughs> see it then and then even now on the fourth time right. it's been on television I still didn't see it coming. It was, it was like, yeah, it was a very sort of uh, silly little jab, really. A number of things that distinguish your show, aside from what we've talked about from other late night programs, you do a monologue, but it's, I understand that, you know, I guess because stand up is not your background in the way that it is for a lot of the other hosts, it's not something that you love, is that fair to say? And you do it a little differently. No, I do love it. You do? I, I, yeah, yeah, for sure. No, all our monologue came from was going, well, at the time when we launched, pretty much everyone else on TV was just doing, let's say, like 20 jokes. Right. A study announced today said that, such and such, you know? Right. So we were like, okay, well, what should we do to be different? Well, let's just pick a topic and talk about that. So like yesterday, we talked about Coachella, and then we talked about the fact that there was a makeshift post office set up at Coachella, and lots of people were filing their... <laughs> taxes because yeah. it was tax day on Monday at Coachella <laughs> and then there was another story that they said that there were women who they think had spent upwards of $20,000 on liposuction and fashion accessories to look good at Coachella. at Coachella so we talked about that oddly now and I'm absolutely not saying this is as a result of us but mm -hmm. oddly now I think Seth does a monologue which is closer to sort of yeah. around one topic he doesn't stand up he sits down Stephen does a monologue where he sort of talks about a, a topic and um, oddly that it doesn't feel like there's this mass of people doing like 20 jokes right, anymore you, you've changed the rule there I don't, so. well no I don't think that's as a result of us I just well, think it, it, I don't, I how don't, about, how about be... you don't sit behind a desk necessarily yeah it's just not sort of who I am really right, right, right. and the odd thing is when we came in and we were building our set and we said where the couch was going to be and where I was going to be and where Reggie and the band were going to be 
there was like this sort of intake of breath of people go <laughs> and I was like, what are, they were like what, what's wrong and they were like oh it's just not it's just not how people do it right. the band's always on the other side and we were like <laughs> who cares right <laughs> and my biggest reason was I was like well no because our guests are going to be here and Reggie's going to be there so why would we put our guests with their back to Reggie and the band if we're talking about our show as an inclusive environment and we actually on our test shows did the interviews and I was sat behind the desk and it just didn't feel right and it was Les actually Les was like that doesn't feel right you being I was like I know I go and we were like well let's just not do that then. Right. because you want it to feel you know there's three people two three people there right. sometimes four like tomorrow night it's going to be like Charlie Theron Jessica Chastain Chris Hemsworth and Emily Blunt we're like well four people and I'm behind a desk you, it's, yeah. our show is just not a show where we're going to put like a block of wood between me and our guests yeah. it just doesn't suit me no it's more formal than necessary maybe but I think from the very first episode, something as you referred to the emphasis on digital content and how it's taken off. The very first episode with Tom Hanks went viral, the yeah. reenacting the career, and many, many others since. So was it always at the outset even an intention to create content that would be potentially viral? But also, can you explain for people who might wonder, how is it advantageous to you guys when you're putting out, you know, to have, it's great to have content go viral versus yeah. not but how does that benefit the show well that is the show what's the point of the show the, the only point of the show is relevance that's it being in the conversation that's it just just that's the point of the show is to just make a show that is relevant to an audience that like make content that people like the truth is I don't think that like late night has changed as a result of that I just think now we live in a world where people can find and share those things I think if the internet had existed when David Letterman and Steve Martin did David and Steve's Big Gay Day Out. <laughs> Six million people right. would have watched it on YouTube, you know? Right. When he dropped himself into Big Pool of Water wearing Alka-Seltzer tablets, <laughs> seven million people would have watched it on YouTube. You know, that's, right. that's it. It's not... So our, we always just start with the show. What's the show? How do we make the best show? How do we make it have a beginning, a middle, and an end? And our biggest thing is, let's create a show that has content throughout the hour. So last night's show, we had a monologue. We then check in with our guests. We see them in their dressing rooms. We then did a, a brand new bit about headlines. And the new, then we did a toddlerography, which was myself and Gwyneth Paltrow in a dance studio copying a toddler's dance routine. We then came back. We then Gwyneth and Andrew Reynolds for two parts. We then spoke to the last shadow puppets <laughs> at the bar. Then the last shadow puppets played in part six. Like, fill the hour. That's it. Yep beginning a middle and an end what does it look like and then what you hope is if your content's good enough people will share it the next day because it's not about trying to create viral moments it's about making a show that's good enough that people go did you see this right i'll send it to you now right right you know and that's true of john oliver's show as much as it's true for a, a lip sync battle right, on right, right. Jimmy's show, you know, and that's that's it. And what you want, all you're searching for at the start of these shows is to, what are the bits that will define our show? You're hoping for two or three of those bits to find them at some point in your first year. And on that point, so it seems like every late night show over the years has had something that you immediately associate with it, yeah. right? So Whether that's was, a top 10 list exactly, or with jaywalking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and now even the folks that are doing it of your generation, you know, Fallon has his lip sync battles. Yeah, and thank you notes. Kimmel and, yeah. mean tweets yeah. and whatever. So for you, it seems like more than... There are a number of possibilities that it could have been, but the one that seems to have taken on a life of its own is carpool karaoke, uh, right? Uh, without question. Yeah, for sure. And I know you may be sick of answering these particular subset of questions, but people are curious what inspired that and how did you get i think the initial buy-in is the most important because then once you've got your one or two you're yes. you're on your way so what inspired it and then getting over that initial hurdle well ben winston who's the exec producer of our show and, and my best friend we had done a sketch for comic relief at home with my character from gavin and stacy the smithy character we'd done a few sketches 
with him and we did one sketch with and it, in the sketch was uh, Paul McCartney and the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Keira Knightley and, and various people and we started the sketch with my character and George Michael in a car and we were singing Wham! songs and people just flipped for it people were like this is and I don't know why we we could never work out why people loved it so much we then made a documentary for the BBC Ben and I on a, a brilliant singer-songwriter called Gary Barlow at home yeah. called When Corden Met Barlow yeah. which was an hour-long documentary about his life and career and in it we would drive to different places in his life singing songs and again people just loved it and we were like what, what is it and so when we were sitting down here trying to find ideas and bits for the show and we we just happened upon this idea we were thinking well Los Angeles people always talk about traffic car carpool lanes carpool karaoke that feels like a thing and then we and then we just went out to everyone and when I say everyone <laughs> I mean everyone think of an artist in the world <laughs> they said no to it right this is in advance of your first show oh yeah everyone said yeah. no yeah and we'd be like, oh, I don't know why people like this. We, the truth is, personally, I've never felt as sure of an idea. And it was interesting. We had some producers or writers over go. So you get in the car and you sing songs, and then what? <laughs> and we go, yeah, no, that's it. That's it. And they go, right. It feels like it's missing a beat to me. And we just felt sure. And then it was a chance meeting with a lady who works for the label that Mariah Carey is on, and she was here in the office. And I dragged her into my office and I played her, myself and George Michael, and she instantly got it yeah. and went, will you send that to me? And then she showed it to Mariah Carey and Mariah Carey said, let's do it on Sunday. And this was like Wednesday. Crazy. And we were like, oh, okay, <laughs> all right. And we did it and then we put it out on our second show. And I think within like two days, like four and a half million people yeah, had yeah. watched it. And then like right now, today, mm -hmm. for our show, we have the number one and two most viewed online clips in the history of late night right. TV in America. And that's, that's like, Adele and, and Justin Bieber. Bieber. And that's like mind blowing to us. Like we put one up the other week at Jennifer Lopez, 35 million people have seen it. We have one coming up with a twist in it, which just blew my mind in the car. I don't even tell you any more than that, but it was like, oh my, this is where this bit's at now, that this is going to happen? Yeah. It just seems like maybe part of it is obviously your people and the word that, I don't know if you like to hear it, but like people find you so likable and relatable and also that you have a great voice yourself and also that most of these people, unfortunately, don't sing their stuff unless they're promoting something, right? Well, the truth is, what you often can't do is get people to do their hits on right, TV. Right. They want to do their new stuff. And also what you get is that, uh, it's an incredibly intimate environment. And now stars know that we are only interested. We are only interested in making a piece that they shine in. There's no sense of like, oh, I wonder if we can get them to say this. Right. Like, none of it. We just want you to shine. So if you shine, the show shines. If the show shines, I shine, and that's it. And it's proven to have a huge commercial bounce for them. Stevie Wonder's thing blew up after all these... Yes, Stevie's, Stevie Wonder's album went to number one, I think, in like seven countries the day after. Like and he, like his essential collection. Elton John said the other day, he said it's the, the best piece of press that he's done in 10 years that's fantastic he told me and mostly I'm incredibly grateful to make a TV show in this day and age where people can find these clips like like there's a, there's a very strong chance that the Adele couple will hit like 100 million views by the end of this month and that's astonishing to, to me that's and for a network it's very strange because people often go well, how do these online clips generate money for a network? Yeah, yeah. And then in the same breath, we'll talk about the fact that PewDiePie made $12 million last year. And you're like, right. well, there's a thing right. there. there. You know, how come PewDiePie makes money, right. but a network can't make money from these clips? And they absolutely do and are. And it's certainly not only carpool karaoke, because we're not going to get into all this, but again, the acting out the careers you've done, Hank, Stamen, Schwarzenegger, the emceeing from people's homes, the <laughs> I personally get a kick out of the celebrity noses. I, you did one of those. I mean, well, that, <laughs> see, that's where I'm so 
feel so lucky right. to be making a show with such freedom that to make a repeatable bit on our show right. which is a piece that never actually makes it to air <laughs> so we have this bit on the show called Celebrity Noses which is a bit that I say I'm very passionate about <laughs> and it starts with the phrase I smell a good time you smell a good time it's time for Celebrity Noses right. and then for some reason there is a glitch or a technical fault which means we never ever get to perform we never get to do the bit in its entirety and what's amazing about that is like we we put one up last week and i think it's at like i think it's at like six hundred thousand views on youtube and the fact to me that six hundred thousand people would sit down and go oh there's a new celebrity and all you know uh, and that's where the show is such fun you know it really is so my last question is this you've obviously found a way to shake this up this whole format this genre of late night you're now going into hosting an award show that you're very familiar with the Tonys that has the unique challenge of unlike the Oscars or the Emmys celebrating productions that the vast majority of viewers have not and will never see for geographic economic reasons I don't know if that's that different to the Oscars now well that could be true as well genuinely I don't like you know people would say that many Um, of the no you're right many of the movies but usually there's one or something that gives somebody a reason to tune it usually so my question is what's the secret sauce that you can bring to this are you excited you know I imagine I'm just in my own head that there would be I could see a world with like carpool karaoke with Lin-Manuel Miranda or whatever yeah but I don't think you want I don't know lots of people have said that and the truth is the thing I love about award Mm -hmm. shows is that they are happening there and then right now and you've got the best seat in the house and I think particularly for a celebration of live theatre you have to make it a live theatrical event so I don't know if you want to leave the Beacon Theatre for eight minutes to watch me singing in a car, you know? The thing with the Tony Awards and the thing that you want people to know is like, regardless of my hosting, I could be the worst host in history. It's very, very possible. (laughs) And the way I feel, or the way I felt last night, absolutely inevitable. But it is the best award show on TV. What is an award show? A collection of people walking up to a stage and receiving a statue and thanking their agents. Like, that is, that's what we're watching. The Tony Awards, you're going to watch 10 performances of the best shows on Broadway right now. I defy anybody to go back and watch the cast of Matilda's performance from a couple of years ago and then show me anything else in any other award show that stands up to it. Or Andrew Rannells singing I Believe at the Tonys. Or the cast of Newsies doing a... Like, it's an absolute live theatrical event. And the amazing thing is, we we talk about like the Super Bowl and, oh, what's the halftime show going to be like? Like, there's ten (laughs) halftime shows in this two-hour award show. And this year... More than any other year, there is, and very, very fortunately for me, a musical that is, without question, a cultural phenomenon, Mm -hmm. an absolute phenomenon. Hamilton is a life-changing experience when you watch it. Mm -hmm. And to be there on a night where you're going to see that cast perform excerpts from that show that if you want to go and see it, it might cost you a thousand dollars and you can watch it in your living room is... It's amazing. It's great. And so I never quite understand why a magazine, I don't know, let's pick The Hollywood Reporter, wouldn't like in the race to the Oscars you can't move for covers of The Hollywood Reporter about the Oscars. And it's very, very difficult if you're an award show like the Tonys if you are not backed by a mass of entertainment magazines. Let me but tell you, I fight for it. I'm going to be there all of May and half of June through the Tonys. I'll be, I, that's what I do. I, but you're right. It's hard to get... Inter- well, then you, know you what tell it, me. Then you tell me why... Because... Why on the cover of The Hollywood Reporter, yeah. why is Lin-Manuel Miranda not on the cover so of The Hollywood Reporter? So he has been, but it's a, it is the exception to the rule. And the, I think a large part of it, in all honesty, is that the Broadway community 
because they're only in most cases targeting people in New York mm. for ticket sales and whatever. No, you're right. No one travels to New York these days. No, well, you're no, absolutely no, right, no, Scott. no, no. Now but I think they about don't, it. They don't spend, honestly, on ads and things that in a lot of ways drive the business of the media. But believe me, I am in your corner on this because for the last three years, I have fought to have them let me go there and I will be doing it again for the five weeks. But that's not going to change unless it changes. I agree. Do you know what I mean? I, so like, I Hamilton's going to go on a massive tour. around. Yep. Like, you know... Hamilton's going to make, I don't know this for sure, my hunch is when we're old and grey, we're going to look back and Hamilton is going to have made a lot more money than Room. (laughs) I think. I don't know. I think it already has. I don't know. But like, so there is a thirst for that. So then the very same publications, and I'm not just talking about that. I'm I'm, I'm just joking. But like the very same publications that would go, well... Uh, it's rated poorly again. It's like, yes, without your support, right. it's going to. People only watch the Oscars because there is a mass of <gasps> who's going to win? Right, who's going right. to win? Oh my God, it's right. coming. It's coming on Sunday, Sunday night. You've got to be there. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? And they go hand in hand. They go hand in hand, both of those things. So I will be doing my part. You can count on me. I, yeah. I, I will be there at the Beacon on the 12th, and I'm very excited. June 12th. Because theatre's the thing that's not going to change. No. TV, going to change. Movies, like right now. Right now, we're in this, we're in this uh, incredibly exciting and interesting place where, you know, Sean Parker is saying, let's make a way where we can beam movies to people. It's like, it's all changing. Room, Do you yeah. know what isn't? Theatre. Mm-hmm. Stronger. Every single year. Year upon year upon year, it's smarter and it's brilliant. And every single, every single president of every single network, if Lin-Manuel Miranda calls him up and says, got an idea for a show, they're like, quick, (laughs) (laughs) get an issue about, here, how much do you want? What do you want? What do you want to do? You know, and that's... Well, that's, that's what the live TV broad airings now are of The Wiz or whatever it may be. They, that, they're go. trying to capture There it. you go. And that's yeah. live theatre. That's it. Yeah. People are interested right. and they want to see it. But they can only see it if they know it's on. They can only see it if they know what they're watching right. in the same way that they can only drink a Pepsi if they know what it is. Right. <laughs> For me, personally, to host the Tony Awards means more to me than genuinely any other award show in the world Mm -hmm. like I have had the two best times of my life working on those 10, 12, 15 blocks of New York it is an incredibly supportive brilliant and it's buzzing with creativity and I'm very very proud and I also would like to apologise in advance for the huge mess I make of it. <laughs> well, I can't wait. Thank Jeez. you so much for, oh, for this. What a lovely fun. way to spend an hour. Thank, Thank you, you so much. I flew by. Uh, Cheers, I man. Enjoyed it.